Well, as Thomas told us last week, we are almost through the, the liturgical year. And as we approach the season of Advent, uh, the readings from the lectionary get a little bit apocalyptic, a little dark at times. Isaiah tells us where all of this is headed eventually. Uh, we're promised that one day God will create a, a new reality devoid of, of pain, of loss, um, a place of peace, a place of joy, a place of divine purpose and beauty. Uh, the passage from Luke's gospel I'm about to read is just a little different, just a little different. Uh, on the surface, it doesn't feel immediately as hopeful as Isaiah's prophecy, uh, but it does. It does tell us how to live in a world that um, is full of change, full of disruption and uncertainty, which I think is ultimately really good news because that is the actual world that we live in right here and right now. So I invite you to listen now for God's word to us through Luke's gospel. When some were speaking about the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, he said, and this is Jesus talking, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. They asked him, teacher, when will this be and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? And he said, beware that you are not led astray for many will come in my name and say, I am he and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and insurrections, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end will not follow immediately. Then he said to them, nations will rise against nation and kingdoms against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and plagues, and there will be dreadful portents and great signs from heaven. I warned you, by the way, just FYI. But before all this occurs, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. So make up your minds not to prepare your defense in advance, for I will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be betrayed, even by parents and siblings, by relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your souls. The word of the Lord. You, God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. One of the great anxieties that we have about our lives is control. It's control. Whether we attempt to control our career or our children, our health, how others perceive us, uh, or the world around us, the economy, politics. We spend a lot of time, I think, grasping for control. And the reality is that we have very little of it, don't we? This passage from Luke's gospel that I just read, which you might think, at least 
at first glance is a passage about the end of the world, it's really a story about what to do when you find out how little control you actually have. The scene is that Jesus is interacting with his disciples and the conversation kind of shifts, shifts to the beauty and the grandeur of the temple. The disciples are, are marveling at the architecture of the temple that sits at the center of Jerusalem when Jesus just, you know, casually says that one day it's going to fall down. It's going to crumble. Which is basically Jesus' way of saying that the thing that you think could never change the thing that exists at the center of your life, the thing that defines your world as you know it, will one day crumble. And this isn't a metaphor either for Jesus and the disciples. When Jesus says that not a stone would be left upon another, he was speaking about an actual event that happened about 40 years later when the Roman troops came into Jerusalem and they actually destroyed the temple. Now, the disciples react in a way that should feel pretty familiar to us, right? What do we do when we get bad news? How do we respond to uncertainty in our own lives? We want more information, right? We attempt to regain some sense of control. And so the disciples say, tell us, Jesus, when exactly is this going to happen? And would you, by the way, give us a sign or two so that we will know and be prepared we often respond to a loss of control by just wanting more details. And how does Jesus respond? Well, for starters, he doesn't seem to match their anxiety at all, which must have been infuriating on more than one occasion. Instead, he seems to very calmly lay out for them that what is going to happen to the temple is actually just the beginning. After the destruction of the temple, the disciples themselves will be persecuted. Their friends and their family will abandon them, he says, betray them even. They will be brought before authorities much like Jesus will be. And when that happens, Jesus surprisingly tells them not to prepare themselves in advance for what they might say when they are brought before the authorities. And I actually checked the, the Greek translation on this, and it's basically translated as wing it. It's the best, that's the best approximation of this sentence that I could come up with. And he promises them that when they wing it, that he will give them the wisdom that they need. He will give them the words they need when they do it. I have to tell you that um, as someone who is often asked very last minute to pastor say a few words, <laughs> Jesus' instructions here are not exactly a comfort. A few years ago, when I was traveling in Israel with a, a group of people, um, right before we got, we're about to get onto a boat to sail um, on the Sea of Galilee, one of the members of our group, the senior member of our group, nudged me and whispered, hey, when we get out on the water, I think you should say a few words. <laughs> I thought to myself, sure, no pressure. It's not like this is the exact scene of the greatest sermons ever delivered in history. <laughs> Let me just think of something real quick that will inspire you and you'll remember forever. So trying to get out of it, I looked at him and told him what one of my mentors had told me in seminary, which is that Presbyterians speak in paragraphs, not in bullet points. It didn't work. So I had to wing it. 
And uh, in the end, I guarantee it was far more formative for me than it was for those poor souls on that boat, which I think is supposed to be the point. Winging it is a form of faith. It's a form of faith, an opportunity to trust that God will meet you in the moment that you need it, and he will lift you up. And I think, my friends, that this is actually very good news. Because I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we are all winging it most of the time anyway, aren't we? Uh, a British journalist named Oliver Berkman is someone I follow pretty closely, and he wrote a, f a piece a few years ago about the moment that he realized this. And here's what he wrote. Growing up, uh, I assumed that the newspaper on the breakfast table must be assembled by people who truly knew what they were doing. Then I got a job at a newspaper. <laughs> Unconsciously, I transferred my assumptions of competence to, among others, people who worked in government. Then I got to know a few people who did, and who'd admit, after a pint or two, that their jobs involved staggering from crisis to crisis, concocting credible sounding policies in cars en route to press conferences. <laughs> and no disrespect to journalists or um, political uh, operatives either. And even then, I found myself assuming, self-hatingly, that this might be explained by a certain bumbling Britishness, the perverse pride we sometimes take in shambling mediocrity. Then I started working in America, where it turns out everyone is totally just winging it. Can you relate? There's a, a, a sub-thread on Reddit uh, that asks adults to share what is the most embarrassing thing that you should be able to do but can't. And if you read the responses to that thread, you will come to the same conclusion that Berkman does. Uh, one person said, basic arithmetic really embarrassing at work when I panic and struggle to add up two very small numbers. Another said, I'm nearly 30 years old and I don't know how to tie my shoes in the normal fashion. Instead, I can only do it bunny ears style. <laughs> Another said, iron. I cannot iron. I iron wrinkles into my shirts. <laughs> what about you? What about you? What is something that you should be able to do, to do but can't? For me, I almost always misspell the word restaurant. I mean, it's a really tricky word uh, to spell. And uh, you might be surprised to find that every time we come to serve communion, I am an anxious mess because I confuse or forget the words that I'm supposed to say. Almost always about the cup. It's a tricky sentence. My friend, uh, who is a priest, once told me that the first time he served communion, a man came forward, but instead of holding out his hand to receive the host, uh, he crossed his arms, which is the universal sign that he doesn't want the bread, but would like to receive a blessing instead. And my friend, who is brand new as a priest, said that he forgot what the blessing was. And so he leaned in really close to him and he whispered, I have no idea what to say to you right now. <laughs> But God loves you. <laughs> totally winging it. Totally winging it. And obviously, there are far more serious situations in which we have to wing it all of the time, right? If you've ever raised children, if you've ever 
been brand new at a job or been at a new school or if you've been trying to discern between two good job offers or if you've ever cared for aging parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Unfortunately, there is not a user's manual that comes with this life. Berkman says that at first, this realization that we're all winging it is alarming, and it is a little bit alarming, but ultimately it's deeply reassuring because once we come to grips with the fact that everybody around us is also winging it, we can stop pretending. We can stop pretending to be in control all of the time. Now I see some control freaks and some perfectionists in this room who are thinking to themselves, Sounds like you just don't know how to prepare, John. <laughs> if you just spent more time memorizing the words of institution, you'd nail it every time, which is a fair point. But even the most prepared and the most competent people have to wing it on a daily basis because we never will grasp the whole of the situation that we are in. We can never be certain about what will happen in the very next moment, let alone next week or next month or next year. Life, um, it's always bigger. It's always more unknowable than we care to admit. And the truth is that with all of our choices, with all of our plans, we are still constrained by so many unchangeable details. And if you're a person who thinks that it's possible to control every outcome of your life, to control every outcome of the lives of people around you that you love, what do you do? What do you do when the thing that you think could never change does change? What do you do? Well, I think, for one, you feel like a failure. You feel like a failure because you think it's your fault for not anticipating and then controlling the outcome. Thankfully, Jesus tells us that there is another way to live. And my friends, if you are willing to accept that you are, for the most part, winging it most of the time already, and you will discover freedom to accept the world as it change, changes and trust, deeply trust that God will meet you in that exact moment and that he will give you what you need. I've been reading uh, Bono's memoir for the past couple of weeks, which I think is a kind of extended reflection on this concept of winging it. Bono's word for it is surrender which is the title of the book. And toward the end of the book, he, he tells a story about watching his son, who is also a musician, uh, perform with his band. And afterwards, he tells, him that, that he tells his son that he was envious of him, watching him on stage. Imagine being a musician that Bono is envious of. He tells, him, uh, he tells his son, to be yourself is the hardest thing. To be yourself is the hardest thing, and it's easy for you. I've never once been myself. Mike Cosper uh, is, is a journalist. He interviewed Bono for Christianity Today, and he asked him about that line, admitting that that line really caught him off guard. It surprised him. How could someone like Bono fear being himself? And Bono said, the word surrender still seems out of reach for me. The integratedness you expect from a person who's been made whole by their faith, I'm probably missing. I have the joy, I have some insights, I have a lot, but being comfortable in my skin is what I was talking about. And he goes on to say, you know the U2 thing on stages, a lot goes in. We really have to prepare ourselves before we walk out on stage. We have to pray for each other. 
And it's like, come on, lads. I love that line. It's just a rock and roll show. Get over yourself. But we can't do it without that. I was just speaking to my high school yesterday, to the six-year students. I was reading them the book. I was so nervous. He's talking about the fear of being out of control, of putting himself out there and risking what happens next. That's what winging it is. And look, if it scares Bono, it's probably true that it scares you as well. But there is real power here. The nerves of surrendering give way to something else, Bono says, something that feels a lot like faith. Cosper says that Bono took a slow breath and said, but I will tell you, deep down, there is an anchor. I'm fixed to a rock, and that rock is Jesus. Which I have to tell you sounds an awful lot, an awful lot like what I think Jesus meant when he told the disciples that by their endurance, they would gain their souls. As any endurance athlete will tell you, endurance doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean winning all of the time. It just means to keep going, to stay in the race. It just means remaining fixed to the rock. My friends, there is an anchor. There is an anchor. And thanks be to God that we can fix ourselves to it too. This week, you are going to have an opportunity to wing it. You will. It might be at work, it might be at home, it might be at school, it might be in your neighborhood, it might be with your friends or family. It might be on the drive home today. At some point this week, you're going to have to surrender control. You're going to have to wing it. And that's good news. It really is good news because exactly at that time, God will meet you. He will meet you. Thanks be to God.